The following program is an encore presentation of the Positive Mind Radio Show. Everybody, this is Kevin O'Donohue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. And many of you responded positively to our last show on home. That's right, we did a show last week on home. And how about it? Do you have a home? How do you feel when you get home? We talked about the ah feeling. I'm home now. I just made it home. I got home. Yeah, so we did that show. And if you want to get a copy of that show, you can go to the Foundation for Positive Psychology.org, TFFPP.org. And we thought we'd follow up that show with a sense of what happens when we don't have home. You know, last week we said, Nasima, that pretty much all mental health issues can be framed around an idea of a loss, a loss of something. And last week we said a loss of home. Imagine growing up really without a sense of home, that your home felt threatened every time you were in it, from the time you were one, right right out of the womb. Um, Imagine the mental health difficulties, the developmental difficulties for somebody who didn't have a home or get a sense of home. And consequently grows up to be an adult and doesn't know what it feels like to have a home and to be home. And we talked about being home in your body. And Nasima talked about that and some exercises to do about how to contact a sense of home in yourself. But if you never really got it, it would make sense that you would have emotional and developmental issues. And we can kind of define home, too, as the sense of stability security, safety, predictability. Some people grow up in a cinema without any sense of stability at all. Or they're stable in one area, let's say like money. Mom and dad have money, and they're sending me off to all schools and everything's okay. But they're not stable in other ways. And maybe their relationship is not stable. Or, right. you know, maybe their relationship with you is not, like how they relate to you, is not consistent and predictable. Or health issues that make one person, you know, feel anxious, even though there's all the money in the world and everything else is stable. Well, the health in the family isn't stable. You know, when I was in grad school, I was amazed at one thing. I remember studying about schizophrenia and realized that the major complicating factor to a schizophrenic symptoms and an exacerbation of that symptoms is how they're treated in their home. Now, you would think that they would be treated like specially and gently and, you know, kindly and thoughtfully, you know, and it's actually the reverse. And it's, it makes, you know, it's sad um, that family members would actually treat somebody who's suffering a mental illness worse, like schizophrenia. But it can wear you down. It is a kind of disease that wears people down and is frightening for many people. So families get hardened to the symptoms and start to maybe neglect or even criticize 
the schizophrenic. That's why when we treat schizophrenia, we treat the whole family. We want to treat where the person is going home after they leave the therapist's office. And we want to treat the family how to make that home an educational environment, a safe environment for the schizophrenic. I think that would apply to to any personality disordered individual or any kind of psychosis disorder, because it is a disease not only of the person, but of, you know, of the family, like everybody in the family is going to share in its healing process. um, And everybody is somehow affected by the disease, as they would be if somebody had cancer, as they would be if somebody had MS. You know, it's a sign of just how people think about and treat mental health as opposed to other sort of physical disease. And um, I believe the culture is changing around it more and more, but it's yes. it's taking time. And it's a very difficult sort of, because you're asked to change your behavior in some way in order to treat this disease. And so that pushes on your own sort of yes. mental ego construct as a person. Yes. Yeah, so you want to educate family members about any type of mental disorder going on with a family member. Personality disorders, let's say, are very persistent and stubborn disorders. They can span the whole life, lifetime. And if you're living with somebody, and we're going to talk a little bit later in the show about borderline personality disorder, BPD, is a very persistent and stubborn person that personality disorder like the rest of them that can span the whole person's whole life but when the when the family gets educated about the specifics and and the reasons why somebody develops that kind of disorder it can go a long way to creating a sense of home and safety for the sufferer the person who has the disorder and the family itself so sometimes people who are suffering in such a family especially a rejecting family, will create a world of their own. They'll create coping mechanisms that, you know, nobody else can do. And one that we thought we'd talk about today is magical thinking. Like, we're all subject to magical thinking. Do you buy a lottery ticket? (laughs) Then you are subject to magical thinking. Um, You know, do you carry a, a lucky charm? Do you believe in karma? Right? What about these people who believe in karma? Do you believe in karma? Sure. Uh, you do. On some level, yeah. You know, like what goes around then comes around. Then why do bad people keep getting the best things? <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, is karma work in reverse? In well, case, well you does, like so. to think, you know, oh, that person, they're going to, they'll get it someday. They'll get their, they'll get their comeuppance okay. someday. Yes. You and, know? Right. Which looks like, isn't that a perfect coping mechanism? You can... You can curtail your frustration. You can just cut it right off by saying, they'll get there someday, right? It's magical. It's mag- Imagine that. I can just cut my ma- frustration right in half. So magical thinking. Do you have any rituals that you do? You can watch these athletes. Some athletes will go through tremendous rituals before even they serve a tennis ball. You can see, you know, uh, one of these stars who will just – you know, it's almost comical. The Rafa, of, Rafa Nadal right, has a right. has a tried and true routine he does before he tosses the ball. It's amazing. Every time. So what is he thinking? What is he hoping? Is he hoping that the toss will be so perfect that he can deliver the ball exactly where he wants? He's thinking to deliver it? My thought is it's a way for him to sort of focus himself. Like it's become a focusing tool. 
Like I do, this is the way I sort of manage my anxiety about the moment, and it helps me focus down into the task at hand. And that's where some of these rituals are important. Rituals of you know entering a church, people genuflect. There's something about doing the rituals, the paste rituals, when you come into sacred space,、yes. when you come、right. into contact with people, that I think helps sort of focus、right. what it is you're doing. Right, and 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 that if I don't do it, something bad could happen. If I do do it, something good will happen. Right, you know. So this is the essence of magical thinking, which is the belief that something I do or don't do is going to lead to a good consequence or a negative consequence if I don't do it. So magical thinking—it's a—it's a disease. Well, should we call it a disease? I mean, it's an aberration. It's not. Something so, for instance, if you believe that you're going to have the the lucky lottery ticket, is that magical thinking? Yes, because you're holding a piece of paper with numbers on it, and they might be numbers that you are attached to. Like I always play the same numbers, and those numbers are magically going to, you know, influence the machine. The machine's going to spit them out, and it's going to get me. Uh, the millions and millions of dollars. So you're transferring this kind of magic to this piece of paper. Magical thinking is something that we all do. I mean, if you watch people in a casino, right? There's a place riddled with、oh, yeah. magical thinking. Just one more quarter in the slot machine. Let me shake these dice even harder. A blow on the dice, right? Is it going to affect the outcome? This is what magical thinking is. That we think something we're doing. Is going to affect the outcome. So in casinos, they have coolers, right? People who go around who have、right. somewhat who can affect bad luck on someone. That's、so、right. They're employed by the casino, so that's also another level of magical thinking. When I was researching it, I'm like, wow, the mind is so amazing in its way of trying to figure out how this world works. <laughs> Some, you know, just the whole process of developing like scientific theory and empirical questioning and all that stuff. I mean, it took a lot, lot of time, and it's been a real progression over time. And right alongside it, we also have our rituals and our magical thinking. There's, there is a purpose for it. I don't think it's all bad. There, when it becomes bad, is when it becomes dangerous. That a person's sort of resting their life or their life savings on it, like in a in yes, a gambling situation. If you're putting your house on the line, yeah, we're into what we call in psychology significant clinical distress, either on a social, professional, financial, educational level. So many diagnoses in the DSM five are: Does it cause clinically, socially significant distress in these areas? So you don't want. So magical thinking is innocuous when it's not attached to a significant outcome. But when you're betting the house on something, on a magical thought, then we're into trouble here. Yeah. And and there are certain people more vulnerable to it than others. So gamblers. Gamblers are subject to magical thinking, and so we would ask, "When did this start for you, and why would it start?" And since we were talking about home in the introduction, I would say, "How did this help you in when you were young? How would magical thinking help you to make you feel more at home?" I was young in a house of older people, and I made up a magical friend. 
to be with me, mm -hmm. to help me understand my world. And I think kids do that. Kids make up their imaginary friends, magical friends, magical beings, just to sort of help comfort them a little bit. If they're feeling lonely, neglected, abused in any way, um, or just, you know, on the outs, yes. right? Yeah. You know, we all want a friend. We want to feel connected to something. It helps you maybe feel connected to your world and have some agency. I, you know, I don't want to demonize magical thinking. There's, there's something nice about the comfort it can provide. We need that. We need to feel that sense of, yeah. they can feel a sense of home in some of our magical thoughts and beliefs. Right. Yes, we can. And we don't want to demonize it. Again, it's only when it causes trouble. You know, some people have a lucky hat. They'll go to their favorite sports team and they won't, if they go without the hat, they'll think the team is going to lose. I didn't have my lucky hat. Nothing wrong with it. You know, we don't want to. But we're saying magical thinking is really when it's has significant consequences to it, might have a root in this idea that we talked about last week, that home wasn't as, you know, as stable as we're, we're saying a home should be. So you might have the habit of um, inventing or creating magical thoughts in order to make home more safe. Or more available to you, a sense of home. So let's go into a few examples here because we can make it real for people by saying there's adolescence. You know, it's a, this phenomenon that shows up in adolescence called cutting. Some people in adolescence, and a lot of times trouble happens when you're an adolescent, right? Then trouble in life starts to begin. You become self-conscious, self-aware. You find fault with your body, fault fine with yourself. Fault, you experience shame. You can start the, the first time you feel shame and guilt can really start showing up in adolescence. Adolescence can be a very, very difficult time. And one way uh, adolescents handle it is they cut themselves. They'll take a sharp object and cut their forearm or cut their calf. Well, what they're handling is the extreme sort of discomfort that they can be feeling in their bodies that they can be feeling in their minds because their minds are going through significant changes, neurobiological changes that are really difficult to manage. And especially if you're already in a tenuous situation, uh, an unsafe situation, this just gets magnified yes. exponentially. And the cutting and different behaviors that kind of mimic that, um, are, are ways to cope and relieve some of that pressure and some of that stress. Yes. And other factors, not just the changes in your prefrontal cortex and all the brain changes that happen in adolescence, but social changes. There's a lot of change. And you're able to see mom and dad clearly now for the first time, maybe. You get a sense to compare mom and dad to other moms and dads. And your home life to other home life. So, you know, it's a tremendously convergence adolescence of a lot of awareness that can sometimes be very dark. And so some adolescents cope by cutting themselves instead of having the pain in my brain or in my chest. Let me put it in a particular area of my body. Some other ways might be like picking at their eyebrows or their hair yes. or their skin. Um, right. 
But it's so it's related to magical thinking. You wouldn't think that originally, yeah, but it is related to magical thinking yes. in the sense that when I do this and I see maybe blood come out, a lot of it's connected to that, or feel the pain, then whatever emotion I was feeling is going to go out with it. Yeah. Yes, you're right. That is uh, the sen- the magical thought. And it happens. I mean, so magical thinking can be effective. It's not a good, ultimately not really desirable. But yes, uh, the person can pick the scab and open the wound and feel and transfer the pain that they couldn't see. Or they didn't want or couldn't feel. Or couldn't feel. And put, you know what it is? It's not being able to put it into words. This is how it relates to an earlier age of development, maybe even pre-verbal age of development in the SEMA. They're finding with adolescent cutting that it often relieves a frustration of not being able to express the pain that I'm having. So not with words. I'm not capable. And so when I do see the blood... I'm suddenly, I see a tangible object, a tangible thing happening. It relieves that pain. It goes away, that pain. And I don't have to say the words because I don't even have words for it. Yeah. And it makes sense also, you know, as we move into borderline, because cutting is often associated with borderline personality disorder, um, that a lot of this pain that they're experiencing might be from pre-verbal stuff might even be and this is me moving into my trauma work from even prenatal stuff mm. that that the infant has no words and no way to explain but yet there is a hurt there that is or a fear there and in the case of borderline the fear of abandonment it's huge it's a huge terrifying fear so let's go into borderlines because I let, but first let's finish with cutters because cutters mm-hmm. typically come from a trauma based home. Uh, there's tremendous sense of loss when uh, a person cuts themselves. Uh, there is emotional and cognitive deficits typically, and there's difficult a, a history of interpersonal difficulties relating to others that typically would show up in a cutter. So if I was a therapist for a cutter, I would first I would go slow, right? And you want to make them comfortable. You want to make the person that they feel they can say anything to you. And sometimes, you know, that takes that could take a dozen sessions before they can even start to open their mouths and really really say what's bothering them. Then you would say, you know, so you go slow. And then you want to examine what where would there have been some times of trauma in your life? Or look for them and point them out to the cutter. And then um, how about loss? And interpersonal difficulties. How about, you know, your social friend? You know, do you have many friends? Have you had many friends? When did you stop having friends? Why, why did you stop having friends? So you're trying to create a safe place where a cutter can open up for the first time, perhaps, and really start to explain their magical thinking. Because seeing the blood doesn't take the pain, you know, really, 
is not going to take the pain away. It will take it away temporarily, perhaps, but it's not fixing the problem. I would also think helping them name the feelings that they're having trouble naming would be a big part of the work. And something that I do with people who have trouble sort of managing big emotions and feelings like this is to help them um, find a sense of containment in their own body. And we've done containment exercises in the last show, helping you sort of feel a certain sense of the wholeness of your body and in that be able to start to experience the emotion in a very small amount. Like this, the lo- the sadness from a loss. Right. Maybe just experience 1% of that. And we yeah. make it simple. I would say of these five emotions, mad, sad, glad, bad, scared, which one are you feeling? Because we can boil most emotions down to those five. Mad, bad, sad, glad, scared. And that simplifies it, and they have nowhere else to go. Oh, I think I'm scared. I think it might be fear. So tell me about that. Let's talk about that. Yeah, we can expand. And let's there. track it back. When did you first close your eyes? When did you first feel frightened? Fear, like you're talking about. Can you find that fear? Let's take a moment. Let's see if we can come up with it. And you're creating this non judgmental free zone, a place for this person to easily check off one of these five emotions. And so I recommend starting with, let's simplify it, let's keep it to these five emotions. Then there might be other, like disgust is a kind of emotion, but you don't want to complicate that in the early stages of treatment. So just to bring this back, that, you know, the act of cutting has become sort of a behavior out of magical thinking. So if I'm someone who wants to cut, I'm believing that if I cut, I won't have to feel the emotion, that the emotion will flow out of my body and I'll be okay again. And that's most likely their experience. But but the truth is we have to be able to feel and speak and say our emotions. It's a huge energy in the system and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It might relieve it for the time being, but it's not going to relieve it forever. Like that pain is still going to be there. And it will leave a physical scar. That's one thing that cutting will do. And sometimes just looking at the scar will relieve the pain. Right? So we're saying that the essence of the magical thinking of the cutter is that I can't handle the mental or emotional pain, so I turn it into something I can handle which is the physical pain. And then on top of that, it will leave a scar if I let it go. And then I can get comforted in some way by seeing the scar. And if others see the scar as well. So it'll be out there that I've been a person in pain and other people might be able to see it and treat me accordingly. And I'll be able to see it. And it might offer me comfort at certain times as well. So there's a real complicated psychology here, um, but it's it's something that we want to help the person who's doing it find the language because that's where it started. I didn't have the language to even explain what the pain. I couldn't even identify the pain. So, okay, let's go back there. Let's start from there. What pain could you have been in? What might have been the pain you were in? 
and let's go back. Let's find the language now. So you don't have to continue to do this behavior. You don't have to hurt yourself. And to be able to sometimes express or know even the pain or the emotion, you have to slow down. You talked about slowing down. You have to slow down. And that also can be pretty scary. But slowing down, contacting maybe your body, getting a sense of like where you are now and that you can find safety now. You know, Nassima, so many times people will come to a therapist and say, you know, my mind works okay. There's nothing wrong with my mind. My mind, I can multiply 842 times 237. You know, my mind works okay. And it works swiftly. Sometimes my mind can work so fast. I don't want to slow down. It's not good for me to slow down. I function better when my mind is working swiftly and rapidly. And and that's fun, that's true. But people often come to a therapist in a counseling session because they don't have the language. They don't have the words to describe the other aspects of ourselves, which are our emotions, our feelings, our social relations, you know, the things that make us feel good in life. It's nice to have a mind that works quickly and swiftly. It's great. So sometimes I get clients who are mystified as to why am I here? And it's like, because you don't have the words for what you're feeling and you're missing your life because you're not saying what you feel and the people in your life don't feel close to you because you're so far out ahead of them with your swift mind that you don't think you need them. And if we rewind into like developmental history of, you know, that person, uh, it's likely that they didn't have any buddy sort of mirroring or holding or giving them any kind of containment around their emotions, asking them, you know, like, use your words, you know, what are you feeling, you know, and, and being okay with what they say. And as they struggle with trying to, you know, say how they're angry or frustrated or sad about, you know, their parakeet dying, you know, these, these are little things, you know, it's like, it seems small, but it's so important to give little people young ones, an opportunity to feel their emotions, to feel okay that they're feeling the way they're feeling and giving them some containment and holding in that. Because if you don't, then their minds are going to just develop swiftly. They're going to develop these coping strategies like, okay, let me keep my mind pumped up and ready to respond to situations very, very swiftly so I don't have to be in touch with the emotional pain. And I'll, I'll, I'll survive this place. So this is what we're talking about home, to bring it back before our break, that you want to be able to slow down enough to have a sense of home. You know, we started this podcast today with the sense of, ah, when I get home, there's a, a letdown. I can breathe, right? I am home. I ah. can slow down and maybe I can feel things that happened to me during the day that maybe I couldn't feel right. at the and time. And you want to grow up, ideally, with a mind that develops in a home where there's also a, a, a place to go, ah, I am home. This is Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And this is The Positive Mind. We'll be right back.
And we are back. I'm Kevin O'Donnell of The Positive Mind. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer. Do you have a 13th floor in your building? We don't. <laughs> Isn't it amazing right. that in Manhattan, and I think many places all over the world, they omit the 13th floor? Yes. That this superstition about the number 13 right. and Friday the 13th and all these things is, is everywhere. And it is an example of magical thinking. We have to look at the origin of this superstition because buildings weren't always th- above 13 floors. So I don't know. Anyway, this is pervasive. And look at your own life. Are there examples of magical thinking or superstition? You know, Nasima, I think a famous magical thought would be a placebo, right? When I take this, I don't get that, right? So people will be given... Even the doctors might know. I mean, we we should get a doctor in here. How often his treatments are placebo treatments because people often go to doctors and don't have anything wrong with them. You know, I mean, it must be an awkward experience for doctors, but I'm sure they're very experienced at client people, patients that come in who, you know, maybe come in every year for a physical or something and they do certain things and there's... No danger, nothing wrong, and the doctor is aware that this is like a not necessary visit. I'm not going to be using my expertise here. And just might, while the time away, just being, you know, how's your diet? How are you, you know, any new things going on? Everything, you know, I think so dentists and doctors and, and barbers, you know, they must learn how to talk to people, all three of these professionals. And they must encounter magical thinking all the time. And doctors have tr- probably tremendous experience giving placebo, uh, placebos to, to patients because there's nothing wrong. And I'll, okay, well, I'll fill this if it's going to make this person feel better. And it's not going to do any damage. It's a sugar pill or whatever it is. Then we'll, we'll go ahead with it. And it's amazing how it works. And this is kind of the power of magical thinking. Placebos can work Do you, and people yeah. heal and that's like pretty amazing yeah and it ties in with our theme here you know do you know people in your life who are always going to doctors you shake your head you know you know better than even the doctor that there's nothing wrong with this person in your life and yet they need to go to the doctor and you have to wonder did they have a home when they were growing up what kind of home did they grow up? So they go to a doctor who's a comforting presence, a father figure, a mother figure, a nourishing, nurturing figure, that this is the only place I get to feel home. Maybe it's the only place I get to feel seen in how I'm feeling. Yes, validated in my feeling. Somehow my dentist understands me. People will say, oh, my barber, you know, the best, my, the best hour of my month was when I go to my barber. <laughs> or my doctor. Yes, I feel I feel validated with them. Nothing I say is challenged or questioned. You know, I feel accepted. Um, makes you wonder, right? What kind of home? Where where was home when you were young? And and let's find the language to talk about that. That maybe you didn't feel like you had a home. Did you feel like you had a home growing up? Do you have magical, pervasive magical thinking? Do you go to the doctor a lot? 
I mean, what would be other examples of people having magical thinking rituals in their adult life? So needing placebos or having rituals that they do that will will maintain my health, you know? So I will clean the refrigerator every night. or <laughs> I don't know what, what, what you could come up with, but there are things people do that they think is going to make them physically healthy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily exercise or something like that. It's just if I do this, I will stay physically healthy. And this can move into something like OCD for some people because then it's it becomes like I have to do this. Otherwise, this will happen. And I've seen cases where OCD comes up, a child loses a parent young for a disease that was unseen, unknown. It just kind of happened out of nowhere. Yes. They're kind of blindsided by it. Right. So in their nervous system, they then take that, okay, well, if he was blindsided by the disease, I'm going to be hypervigilant. I'm going to look for disease possibilities anywhere, everywhere, so they don't get me. So you become a germaphobe. Then you become like a germaphobe. Okay. Yeah. And, well, and, and that has to move through a kind of treatment that, again, I feel like a lot of this is a, a failure of differentiation. You know, it's like that was my father's story. It's not necessarily going to be my story. Can I differentiate that I'm doing things that are good for me, that are helpful? And, and I can also notice that, you know, as I'm riding the subway, everybody on the subway car isn't sick, you know, yet they don't have gloves on. They don't have a, you know, right now they sh- should have a mask, but I'm talking about before COVID, right. you know, you'd ride the subway and all these people would be on the subway and not everybody's dropping dead from a disease from riding the subway. So therefore my thinking that if I ride the subway and I'll, I'll catch a disease is kind of, that doesn't make sense okay. really, because I can look around and orient to the fact that everybody in the subway cars. Okay. But that kind of changed with COVID, didn't it? Yes. All bets are off with with COVID <laughs> and how it influences OCD. And we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder here that a lot of people contacted a certain obsessive compulsiveness in themselves because of COVID, because of being home and locked up and quarantined. And, you know, the the heightening of rituals became important for people. And people said, maybe I'm doing this a little too much. Yeah, if you're if if you're kind of stuck in the same but again if you have pre-existing conditions and stuff of course you might be making different choices but but how we're starting to sort of man- manage this post-covid world, you know, are you able to settle and find some okayness in your body now? You know, can you can you find that you're safe and that you're getting used to negotiating the distance with people and you know, doing the things we have to do right now, right. or is it is it overwhelming you still? And that's something to get some help with. Right. So placebo effect, we're talking about magical thinking here, magical thinking. And yes, obviously the idea that if I wash my hands 50 times a day, I won't get any germs, that's a magical thought as well, right? So these rituals are magical thinking. I, I'm thinking special qualities to this repeated behavior, mm-hmm. and they're not connected at all, right? Yeah. My, you know, my hands are not going to be suddenly germ-free just because I wash them all the time. Or even if they are germ-free, I'm not going to get any 
any disease or anything from that. So these rituals of OCD are related to um, magical thinking. But I want to talk, Nasima, for the rest of our show about something where magical thinking is so clear in our field because we're almost in an epidemic of this type of behavior uh, with borderline people, borderline personalities. And the name says it all. Borderline personality is like a, an identity problem. People, you know, narcissists think they know who they are and they think they're entitled to great things and they don't have to understand anybody else and pay attention and feel anybody else's feelings. Narcissists, you know, yes, it's an identity issue as well, but they don't think it is. Borderline people have a serious sense of a very fragile identity and they're constantly struggling and seeking safety. And so they want safety. And then when they get close to safety, they don't want safety. So it's, it's really like what it says. It's a borderline. You are on the border of safety and then you sabotage your safety so that you never get to feel at home. And it's rooted in abandonment, which we've talked about with um, the author we had, A Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey Through the World of Attachment. We talked about this sense of fragile and insecure attachment to your mother or your father or your home, an insecure attachment. So there's three types of attachment, secure, Insecurely attached, avoidant, and insecurely attached, ambivalent. Um, in the borderline, there is an insecure attachment, but there's also this fragile sense of self, totally pervasive throughout the whole spectrum, that you never felt attached. You felt abandoned. And you want to feel attached, but then when you start to feel it, you have to separate because it becomes overwhelming, and that becomes called engulfment. You, you're afraid I'm going to be engulfed, and I'm not going to have any self at all left. That's often the experience of the the borderline child, is that the the parent or caregiver is either all in or all out in their sort of relational interaction, and there's no middle ground there. And the boundary issues with borderline is is really significant. And we talked about boundaries a little bit in that show, and I've mentioned it a few times, but, but that sense of having a sense of here's me and here's the world is like completely gone with borderlines. So they're constantly negotiating like not having a boundary in this world and feeling the world and feeling like they're impacting the world all the time. There's... It's quite a confusion. It's really terrifying. And that fear of abandonment is extremely terrifying for a young child. And it's amazing to watch clinically because um, a borderline can become very attached to you as a therapist. And they can, you know, compliment you and, you know, bring you even gifts, you know. And they might dress a certain way when they come to your session, a therapy session, you know. And they really want to feel connected or attached to you and really um, confirm that they won't be abandoned 
by you. And then they can call me in the next week and say, you're the worst therapist I've ever had. You're terrible. You don't like me. I know you You don't like me. And, you know, you probably are, are you know, are terrible, mean to all of your clients, et cetera. You know, so they swing. They'll swing back and forth. Yeah. Or they'll uh, just stop therapy altogether. Yeah, well, they can also terminate, and they're they're known for terminating therapy on a dime. And it's sad, but, you know, it's the unreliability in themselves and for themselves that is showing when they terminate without even explanation. And and as therapists, we know this is going to happen anyway. So, so we plan for that and we work around that with client uh, with a borderline personality. So how does magical thinking come up in the borderline? It's a good question. Um, they don't, a borderline typically thinks in pieces, in fragments. They don't have a whole picture. They're, all, they're, they're living day to day. Their sense of security and insecurity is hour by hour and day by day. So they don't have an, their nervous system, and you would know, can't relax enough for them to see a big, big picture of life, their future, the present, their friends, their family, any resources they might have. No, they think in very small terms because it's a constant state of threat and panic, and anything could be gone in a moment. And so because of that constant threat, I can't think of the big picture. And this is, this is the essence of treatment where you provide a safe container for them to project into the future and to feel into the past. If I project into the future, the future I want to create for myself, how do I look stable? What, how can I create stability in my future? And then I look in the past and where was my future, where was my past unstable? When did I did not feel at home? What was the constant threat? What could I not depend on? Because this is the essence of borderline. They couldn't count on anything. So a borderline might come like we talk about adverse childhood experiences, a home where there's no food in the refrigerator or in the, you know, or there's one week there's a tremendous amount of food and then the next week there's no food. One week, mom, you know, the attention, the nurturing is consistent, warm, soothing, and the next week it's totally absent. And so there's a sense of not being, I can't count on anything. So that would be one of my questions to a borderline. Who could you count on as a young person? And the answer invariably comes, not really anybody. And so there's that sense of self that never got to feel Stable. Yeah. And it might also be a feeling, like I said before, about, you know, being mirrored emotionally helps a child identify themselves and who they are and how they feel about things. And if there is no consistent emotional mirroring from a caregiver, from an adult, it kind of leaves the child fractured in all of this energy of their emotions. And so what do they do? They dissociate. They they move into some other state of being. And this becomes habitual uh, for a borderline. So make this clear to people. Um, what is What would good mirroring look like? When are some moments when a parent could mirror that a child will even remember back when? 
often what happens is that children will come into, you know, a situation and start experiencing emotions and not understand what they're feeling. And if an adult can come in with some empathy, putting themselves in their child's shoes, thinking, wow, how would I feel if this happened to me at this moment? Like, say it's that, you know, they something went wrong like they 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 got a bad grade from their teacher or okay, something okay you're it's in like, first okay, grade you get a bad first grade first grade i get a bad grade i was talking in class too right. much or something so as a parent you could be i can imagine you feel really disappointed yeah, so i first want to say as a parent you might be angry you might like got a bad grade and then but you see your child having a real nervous frightened reaction and you wait, wait a second. This is much more important than me being angry with the child. So I didn't want to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As a parent, you have to be able to sit on your world and okay. be able to, to step into the shoes of your child and be like, wow, my child's getting a review that's telling them they did something wrong. How would I feel? How do I feel when, when somebody tells me, oh, well, I feel ashamed. I feel scared. I feel sad. I might feel angry. So maybe you can menu those emotions to sort of help the child catch and be like, oh, I'm really angry because, you know, I was having a good time in class and I thought I was doing okay, but here the teacher says I wasn't. And so maybe I'm confused too. So you could you could add that in. Okay. So it's okay. really about can you can you sort of step into someone else's shoes? Can you step into your child's shoes and maybe menu and help them understand their emotional ground? And this is what I want to say is so important. And I would say to parents, at least do the fear and anger moments of your child. Mirror those. You don't have to mirror the glad feelings uh, and the anxious ones i would do that as well but let's say the the the, the the hard feelings like anger and fear to to even remember that as a as a child to, as an adult to look back and think well yes my parent did talk to me about me being afraid or did talk to me about my being angry at a moment and to be able to remember that as a grown up looking back on that because as we said with the cutters they don't have the language they don't have the emotional language. And if somebody had mirrored them like you're talking about here when they were young about fear and about anxiety and about anger and just said, oh, you're, I'm noticing you're angry right now. And can you tell me what you're angry about? The child has to tune into themselves and make and connect cause and effect. Magical thinking is, is all about not connecting cause and effect. And it's usually a deficit in being able to put things, your emotions into words. So when you're mirroring a child and halt, let's stop a second. You're feeling frightened right now. I can see that. You're safe. I'm here. Tell me what you're frightened of. And I think that's a critical piece as well, to to have the child put it into their own words, not for you to tell them what they're frightened about. Not for you to tell them what they're angry about. Not for you to tell them what they're anxious about. Have them tell you, I am anxious about this. And then you need to say, it makes sense to me. You have to validate their emotions. Okay. Because otherwise they'll be questioning themselves all the time. If you don't validate, it makes sense to me you're afraid. Right. It makes sense to me you're disappointed or confused that yeah. your teacher gave you this grade. Because that almost finishes the experience. There's closure now. There's nothing left open around this. 
And this is a strategy that you can use with anyone in your life who has borderline, who is struggling with borderline, is to be able to validate their emotions and help them find the words for their emotions and help them, you know, give them the space to identify their emotions really helps someone who's struggling with borderline. Right. And one of the benefits of borderlines is that they often can remember pivotal moments from their childhood when these pains did start. And now you're giving them an opportunity in therapy, in a session, to actually go back there and remember that and to say it, say what the fear was, relive it. And as a therapist, you say, that makes sense to me. Now they're hearing it for the first time because they're putting it into language for the first time. So one other aspect of working with borderline is that... um, with someone with borderline is that they can move into delusional thinking, which is like the exponential growth of magical thinking. So magical thinking becomes delusional thinking. And then the world is, they're living in a completely different world than you are. And that's where you have to be really, really aware of working with their world first. You can't convince them that their world is different than it is. You have to kind of go with them, but still hold the container that says, you know, it's like there is an actual reality here that both of us can share. You know, it's so difficult working with borderline clients. I mean, a lot of therapists won't take them Mm -hmm. uh, because as we know, you know, often the complaints to, you know, the ethics board are by borderline clients. They're 80% will be the ones, any objections or complaints about you as a therapist will come from borderline personality. It's a crazy profession because here we are working with vulnerable people and then we're working with people that could very well, you know, complain about us. And we're doing the best we can. And, and working with borderline is hard enough in itself because it's almost like you have to have dual attention at the same time. You're working with trying to help them to access the uh, difficult memories and the place where this all started. But you also have to be aware at any minute they could turn on you (laughs) in a moment in the session. They can turn on you and just, you never like, you know, just the way you're sitting, (laughs) you know? So I'm just pointing that out as from what you're saying, that it is hard work. It's almost like working with a dissociative identity, Disorder. People would used to be called multiple personality disorder. All of a sudden, somebody else is showing up. Another another um, person is showing up in the session, and you have to be ready for that. So that's very taxing work as a therapist. You can't do those kinds of sessions all day long. Well, and also you need special training. And there are therapists out there who have special training there to are. work with borderline yeah. and and. That's a specific choice. And there's more and more uh, research and understanding on, you know, the most effective treatments. It is treatable. A lot of people toss their hands up and say it's not treatable. It is very treatable. It takes a lot of participation from the client and a lot of trust. And that takes time to build. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a double-edged sword for young therapists to work with. But borderlines also need experienced therapists. So... You know, it's not fair for young therapists who have the energy and the willingness to take on the challenge um, is not going to work. You have to be a veteran therapist to work with a borderline personality. You have to be a straight shooter. 
You, but yes, and you have to be able to receive darts because they're a straight shooter sometimes as well. <laughs> so to finish off with magical thinking and the borderline, they think in fragments. They don't see the big picture. They are susceptible to delusional thoughts like you don't like me, like they'll project their own kind of self-hatred onto you and think that you're the one who's judging them when they're judging themselves. Yeah, their feelings become their thoughts. And their thought, there's such an enmeshment of thought and feeling. Because, again, if you weren't mirrored as a child, you didn't get to identify a feeling as a feeling. Where does it go? It goes to the head and it becomes a thought. And that thought becomes can become a magical thought. It can be, you know, turned into all different kinds of things. So I just want to, I will read from this article called Borderline Personality Disorder Inside Out um, from... May 2008. The reality is that life lived in the borderline land of cognitively distorted and or magical thinking is driven by the constant need to defend from what are triggered repetition compulsions that leave those with BPD re-experiencing the horror and terror of very young abandonment trauma or the threat of it dissociatively so that what they feel and experience when they feel and experience that it's from their past is really felt and re-experienced over and over again as if it is happening in the here and now which it isn't there's the magical distorted thinking and i agree that feelings are thoughts for borderlines and thoughts are feelings for borderlines so there's a lot to have to work with with that. And again, all sickness is home sickness. Think about it. Abandonment is loss of home. Full-on loss of home. And the terror of loss, of being lost. What is of being what is left. that like? Yeah. You know, can and I'm I uh, you know, I think everybody has access to this. My mentor, Armand DeMille, used to talk about annihilation therapy. Everybody has a memory of when they were going to be annihilated. It might have happened in your birth experience, your pre-birth experience, your early, or, you know, or early childhood. Everybody has touched that moment, every human that is living, when they thought they were going to be annihilated. And so we know, we all have a sense of what it's like to be lost, that moment of annihilation, being lost. I think most people can, can get there, can find that moment. With the borderline, it is constant. It is daily, a daily experience and that if I, if I feel my feelings, I'm going to totally fall apart and I'm going to totally be lost. And then the other side that I feel into is the fear of being left. Like an infant, I think somewhere has this core fear that if I cry and nobody comes, I've been left. Like, I don't think they understand it, but it's a, it's a deep core fear. You know, if you think about, you know, back on the tundra or the savannah, you know, if a baby was left, I mean, he was dinner for, a, for an animal. You know, it's like there's, there's, there's such a helplessness mm -hmm. in the child that if you've been left. Yeah. So I think maybe part of 
the therapy. And we should get a borderline therapist to interview. I'd like to do that um, this morning to contact the morning of being left. How about that? Do you remember that as a child? I remember that. I was left down in uh, the Rockaways when I was a kid by my mother and father and my siblings. They went home and, and were leaving me without telling me with, with uh, some of their friends down there. How many times were children just like left places without, yeah, without prior knowledge, without preparation? I'm just going to leave them. We're going to do a show on being lost as a child. Did you ever get lost? Like you didn't know your way home? Well, let's do some shows around this homesickness and theory of home. We're glad you joined us today. I am Kevin O'Donio of The Positive Mind, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. We'd like to thank KBOO in 90.7 Portland, Oregon. We also have our usuals, KACR in Alameda, California, KAOS in Olympia, Washington, KPPQ, Ventura, California, KXCR in Florence, Oregon, KYGT in Idaho Springs, WGRN in Columbus, Ohio, and WRWK in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you for your continued support. Our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can contact us at tffpp.org with questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. You can also find our podcast on most podcast platforms, The Positive Mind. See you next time, folks. Bye-bye.